Just a minute. I'm coming. FBI, open up! Just a minute. Hello, everybody. This is Legal Man. Welcome to the show. It's going to be a good episode. I'm going to continue the Equal Protection Clause series I'm doing, talking about equal protection and the rights and all this trans shit and showing people how it's just made up and how none of it's actually constitutional and try to give people an understanding, a more fundamental understanding of the scam being run to, in effect, destroy society. And for people who don't know me, I'm a lawyer. I've practiced for more than 30 years. I'm America's most trusted and beloved lawyer because I tell people the truth. And the truth is I was a constitutional conservative for years and years and years and believed all the nonsense about the founders and the genius of the system and the checks and balances. And it's all crap, people. It's all crap. 25 years ago, I got the Internet. And in fairly short order, I figured out that it's just lies, people. It's just it's a grift to keep people in the tax paying plantation. And when I figured that out, I became self-certified as a master practitioner. I also have given myself a Lifetime Achievement Award for the fantastic work I've done on these podcasts, explaining to people how it works. And when the Jones Plantation movies is finally released, I think I'm going to award myself the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I think it's the highest medal that any civilian can award himself, and I think I'm going to bestow that upon myself as well, because I enjoy having a lot of fake credentials, because I think credentials, official credentials are hilarious to me, the way people throw them around and think they actually mean someone who knows what they're talking about. Sure, they might, but they might not. People who have no credentials might know what they're talking about. So I like to have a lot of fake credentials just to really mock people who put a bunch of letters after their name. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and get this show going. Okay, so I want to do a show today. This is kind of part two of Equal Protection I'm trying to give people an idea of how totally distorted, screwed up all of the arguments are, all of the Overton windows are about equal protection and trans rights and this person's rights and that person's rights and the Constitution says this, the Constitution says that, and all the different arguing, and give people a much better idea of how it's really completely and totally made up. And that you can't have situations where the law says one thing, gets interpreted, and then it simply gets reinterpreted to say something completely different. Because if you can do that, then you have the equivalent of the way Hunter Biden can get off with a slap of a wrist and people who walk around the Capitol get multiple years in prison. You have double standards. You have the inability for anybody to know what the law is, that the law can mean anything. And this is where we are with almost all the law. And I've decided that instead of doing the civil rights case from back in 1883, where they struck them down, when the federal government tried to pass civil rights legislation back then that tried to maintain that you couldn't discriminate this and you couldn't discriminate that. And the Supreme Court just found that that's not accurate, it's not true, and it's not constitutional, and the federal government has no authority to do it. Even though we had the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, they were all there. And so how is it that in the early 1960s, somehow it magically became constitutional for the federal government to do it, and now they regulate pretty much any and everything? How? No change in the Constitution at all. None. How did it happen? 
doesn't make sense. It's not credible. It's not possible. Even if you want to believe that the Supreme Court has the authority to so-called tell us what the law is and interpret the Constitution for all times and all men in all cases and blah, 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 by having just issuing some stupid opinion. It has absolutely no authority to then reverse itself and claim that the same thing they said is no longer true and actually the opposite. See, there's no possible way they have that authority. Even if you want to give them the first, they're stuck with it. You can never change it. You have to get a constitutional amendment. And the idea that you can reverse yourself as a Supreme Court and be simply telling us and interpreting what the Constitution is without any change in the Constitution, um, you can't change your opinion. That's all. But they do do it. And I think it's going to be helpful. I'm going to go through, I'm going to read a lot of this opinion, if not the vast majority of it, because it's got so many great things in it. I think that are very, very helpful for people to understand the way the system fits together. That's really what I always try to get people to see is not so much the outcome of this case, separate but equal, but to show people that the way the system actually functions, the not only is most of the important stuff completely and totally hidden, covered up and misinterpreted and misstated, but that the system can never work as it is. And there's all sorts of detail in here that are just fascinating to me um, as a lawyer. And I think it will be interesting to people because it's the foundational case, this separate vehicle. Everybody's heard about it. Everybody thinks it's such a horrible case and blah, blah, blah. This is not a horrible case. It's not poorly uh, reasoned. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is that in order to have this incredible distortion that we do now where trans have to be treated as whatever it is they call themselves, and if someone wants to identify as a cat, then you're discriminating otherwise. And, you know, if you say some minor comment, then you can lose your job because it's so-called discrimination. Everything's discrimination. We're so far from any kind of mooring into reality at this point that I think it's going to be helpful. I think most people assume that Plessy versus Ferguson was a case where a black man kind of tried to sit at the front of the bus, the equivalent of that. And that's not what it is at all. <laughs> it's not what it is at all. The Plaintiff, in effect, and it's much more complicated as a way it came up, but let's just say that the person who was complaining, they were deemed to be a black person because they had one-eighth black in them. That In Louisiana, that was called an octoroon. And so you were considered black if you had just so much as one-eighth black. So if any of your great-grandparents were black, then you're black. You're an octoroon. And this person who was complaining considered himself to be white. In fact, was quite upset as being classified as black, but wasn't allowed to sit in the white seating. And that's what actually went on. It wasn't some person who was standing up for black rights at all. It was a person who was outraged that he wasn't getting all the privileges of being white. <laughs> So right away, you've got this, to me, a hilarious kind of twist to the whole thing because it's just so preposterous. And of course, anytime you discuss this stuff 
And I take huge amounts of grief for discussing this kind of stuff. If you don't tow the company line about how we all have to intermix and all this other shit all the time and laws forcing it and requiring it and not permitting anyone to stand aside, all those things, anything you stand up against those, you're a racist and you obviously hate black people and blah, blah, blah. It's all bullshit. I'm just talking about the realities. That's funny to me. That the way this case is positioned is that a man was insulted that he was being considered black because he didn't consider himself black. He thought, and basically he actually kind of thought it was a actionable violation for the conductor to claim that he was black. He was so offended by it. So this is not your standard civil rights case, <laughs> not even close. And the case comes in 1896. All right, so it's about 30 years after the Civil War. And so you're talking about something that would have occurred in today's time, back in the early 90s. You're talking about Bill Clinton in office kind of thing, Bush leaving, that kind of time frame. So a long time ago, but not forever ago, tons and tons of people would have remembered the Civil War and these amendments and Reconstruction and everything else. And in fact, it's only 13 years after the Civil Rights case was struck down by the Supreme Court. So that's only 13 years. You're talking about 2010. You're talking about nothing. You're talking about Obama's second term. That's how long ago that was. But there's so many great details in here. And one of them is that when you're in law school, you read these things out of case books. And the case books do not include the whole case. They basically never include the whole case. They have excerpts of the case. And you read these excerpts of the case in order to pull out the holding and the issue. And that's the whole thing you're trying to find. What's the issue? What's the holding? And the facts are important only to the extent that they're necessary in order to understand what the issue was. Can you read a set of facts and then determine what the actual issue, legal issue is involved in this case, or at least what the court determines it is? And I remember reading Plessy versus Ferguson only very vaguely because you read it and you know what the outcome is, is separate, be equal, everybody knows the case, and you know it was overturned by Brown. And so you read Brown not very much longer after in these case books. And you see how the court just flips and flops and makes all this shit up. And it doesn't make any damn sense when you're reading it, but the details to me, when I went back and was reading it as an independent person, like now with a completely different view, it's just all very funny to me. The brainwashing in law school is monumental. I mean, it's monumental. I knew it was kind of ridiculous when I was in it, and the professors were mostly full of crap. But the entire point is just to get along and get good grades, and that's it. But let's start it so you can kind of see how convoluted and crazy the thing is. This is a criminal statute that was in place in Louisiana. What's in front of the court is just, it's really mind-bending. And I want to give some people a little bit more before I actually start it, I think, because everybody thinks the South was so fucking corrupt. The South was a bunch of racist. Washington, D.C., being run by Congress after the 14th Amendment, had segregated schools they'd set up, were black-only schools. They had it set up. And in fact, the United States Congress had made it completely impossible for people of Chinese origin to become naturalized citizens because they didn't trust Chinese people. 
And it's also referenced in this case. Think about that. So there was no question at all that Congress was off doing all sorts of stuff that was supposedly, in today's terms, obvious, clear violations of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. They set up separate schools. So this opinion is not something that's an outlier. It references tons and tons of cases that were doing all sorts of stuff all over the country that's really exactly identical. And like I said, Congress itself had completely separated out Chinese people, and they weren't even allowed to become naturalized because they weren't white people. And they were just freely discriminated against. So the 14th Amendment did not protect any and all different people from all this trans that. It was basically strictly interpreted with regards to black people. That's it. And whether or not they were slaves. And it took so long before that changed. So long. And so it's impossible to go back and look at what was intended. Like they always say, oh, I'm an originalist, constitutional originalist. You have to go back and see what they intended. Well, if you're going to do that, obviously they didn't intend this because Congress is, is completely and totally violating what we now supposedly claim it means. All these people were alive then, and they weren't finding it to mean what people claim was supposedly meant when it was passed. So it, it just doesn't make any sense. See, none of the stuff ever makes any sense. They couch it in these terms that make people feel like it makes sense because they get intimidated because they're not lawyers. They can't read legal cases and really understand what's in there because there's so much jargon and bullshit. You just can't figure it out. It doesn't mean it's beyond people. They could learn how to do it. But if you just try to read a case, you're probably not going to really get what's there. So let's start going through it. I don't know how many episodes it'll take, but if people like it, I'll probably end up continuing to read it because I think it's very helpful. It's not Spooner-esque, but it can be used to really show people a lot of stuff. So here we go. The Statute of Louisiana, Acts of 1890, requiring railway companies carrying passengers in their coaches in that state to provide equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races by providing two or more passenger coaches for each passenger train, or by dividing the passenger coaches by partition, so as to secure separate accommodations and providing that no person shall be permitted to occupy seats in coaches other than the ones assigned to them on account of the race they belong to. So this is how it's set up. This is a statute that requires that the races be separated, not just requires that they be offered separate accommodations, but that you're not allowed to sit in a separate section other than the one you are assigned to, unless you are a nurse attending a a kid. They have a little exception here. Think how insane this is. And this is a criminal statute for a violation. (laughs) So this is about as insane a setup as you can get. If something this insane is not unconstitutional, and it wasn't, then anything to do with the trans shit and all the different stuff and the empowering women, all this crap, it's complete nonsense. Women weren't even allowed to enter into contracts and all sorts of other stuff all over the United States for many, many, many years. They were basically, uh, at this point, they didn't have the right to vote. They couldn't do anything. The idea of this equal protection clause was in there to protect everybody equally. It's applied to sex and gender and (laughs) age and (laughs) nationality. All these made-up things. It's not. It's not. I just told you that the Chinese were not even allowed to become naturalized citizens. That was a congressional federal law. Let's continue here. It required the officer of the passenger train to assign each passenger to the coach or compartment, 
assigned for the race to which he or she belongs and imposing fines or imprisonment upon passengers insisting on going into a coach or compartment other than the one set aside for the race to which he or she belongs and conferring upon officers of the train power to refuse to carry on the train passengers refusing to occupy the coach or compartment assigned to them and exempting the railway company from liability for such refusal are not in conflict with the provisions of either the 13th Amendment or the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Listen to all the stuff that's in there. The law gave the officers, in effect, like the ticketing officers on the train, the authority to designate whether you're a white person or a black person, then make you go sit in your section, and if you didn't like it, you could get charged with a crime, which is what happened in this case, and... Absolutely no liability for the person who's making the decision. Now, that wasn't raised, it turns out, which I think that would have been probably one of the better things you could have raised, is the idea that, well, how do they make this determination? You have to have some kind of reasonable relationship to being able to do it. Just looking at somebody, you can't tell. So you can't tell. That's what this guy was all pissed off about. But you can see all the stuff that's in there, right? Look at that crazy case, see? That's a crazy case. All right, let's continue. This was a petition for writs of prohibition and cert originally filed in the Supreme Court of the state by Plessy, the plaintiff in error for the parish of New Orleans, and setting forth in substance the following facts. That petitioner was a citizen of the United States and a resident of the state of Louisiana of mixed descent and the proportion of seven-eighths Caucasian, one-eighth African blood, that the mixture of colored blood was not discernible in him, and that he was entitled to every recognition, right, privilege, and immunity secured to the citizens of the United States of the white race by its constitution and laws. <laughs> you hear this? So the guy's pissed. He's like, hey, I'm a white man. You're calling me a black man. That's not fair. I- I'm entitled to be treated like a white man. That's really how the case starts. You see this? On June 7th, 1892, he engaged and paid for a first-class passage on the East Louisiana Railroad from New Orleans to Covington in the same state, and thereupon entered a passenger train and took possession of a vacant seat in a coach where passengers of the white race were accommodated. That such railroad company was incorporated by the laws of Louisiana as a common carry and was not authorized to distinguish between citizens according to their race. So this is one of these long, long, long Spooner-esque sentences. So this is the procedural positioning of the case, and it's very complicated. I'm not going to get into all of the explanations of it because a lot of these uh, explanations and stuff come, one, from Louisiana, which is a code state, Napoleonic codes, not a common law state, and two, a lot of these very formal pleading issues have been wiped out almost for 100 years since the U.S. Supreme Court rewrote the rules and they all followed suit. Pleading used to be very, very important. You plead in justice or equity, and you had these chancery courts. You had all this different miscellaneous crap, and if you pled it wrong in the slightest little fashion, you got poured out, and they changed all that. You have these sort of general pleadings now, and then it's basically just trying to get to the heart of the issue, but not back then, and so there's this big setup, but you can see how he's upset about that. Let's continue. But notwithstanding this, petitioner was required by the conductor under penalty of ejection from said train and imprisonment to vacate said coach and occupy another seat in a coach assigned by said company for persons not of the white race, and for no other reason than that the petitioner was of colored race, 
that upon petitioner's refusal to comply with such order, he was, with the aid of a police officer, forcibly ejected from said coach and hurried off to an imprisoned in the parish jail of New Orleans. And there held to answer a charge made by such officer to the effect that he was guilty of having criminally violated an act of the General Assembly of State approved July 10th, 1890, and such case made and provided. Yeah, all this fancy language. In other words... They said, look, you can't sit with the white people, even though he considered himself to be white. You got to go sit with the black people. He's so upset. He says, screw this. I'd rather get arrested. He does get arrested and he gets held over on criminal charges in New Orleans. This is how the case is actually presented. You cannot get a more insane, outrageous case to claim that this is not constitutional to do to somebody. But all of this stuff is found to be perfectly constitutional. Let's continue. That petitioner was subsequently brought before the recorder of the city for preliminary examination and committed for trial to the criminal district court for the parish of New Orleans, where an information was filed against him in the matter above set forth for a violation of the above act, which act the petitioner affirmed to be null and void because in conflict with the Constitution of the United States. In other words, he just said, yeah, I did it, but it's unconstitutional. You can't charge me. That petitioner interposed to please such information based upon the unconstitutionality of the act of the General Assembly to which the district attorney on behalf of the state filed a demur, meaning he just said, well, whatever, we believe it is, that upon issue being joined upon such demur and plea, the court sustained the demur, overruled the plea, and ordered petitioner to plead over to the facts set forth in the information that unless the judge of said court be enjoined by our writ of prohibition from further proceedings in such case, the court will proceed to fine and sentence petitioner to imprisonment and thus deprive him of his constitutional rights set forth in his said plea notwithstanding the unconstitutionality of the act which he was being prosecuted, that no appeal lay from such sentence and petitioner was without relief or remedy except by risk of prohibition of cert copies of the information on the proceedings criminal district court were annexed to the petition as an exhibit. What all that basically means is the guy went in there, didn't put any kind of defense on, except that the law is unconstitutional. Uh, the court ignored that, said, I don't think so. And he went ahead and took this appeal in effect up to the United States Supreme Court to find out whether or not he's going to be criminally liable or not. Because if the statute is constitutional, then he's going to be liable. And if it's not, then he's off the hook. There's a couple of other different kinds of procedural things, and I'm not going to get into those because they're not important. So let's get into the meat of it. The respondent made an answer transmitting a certified copy of the proceedings asserting the constitutionality of the law and averring that instead of pleading or admitting that he belonged to the colored race, the said Plessy declined and refused either by pleading or otherwise to admit that he was in any sense or in any proportion a colored man. So he's not trying to in any way be a civil rights advocate for black people. He's the opposite. <laughs> That's what he is. He's the opposite of a civil rights person. He's saying, I'm a white guy, and the last thing I want to do is have to be sitting in the car for black people. In fact, I'd rather go to jail than do that. That's who this man is. That's what this case is about. And so under no circumstances can you ever get a more outrageous fact case than this in order to find something unconstitutional. But they didn't find it unconstitutional, and it stayed the law for 60 years until the Supreme Court somehow magically reversed itself and found that separate but equal isn't the rule, and you got to integrate, and they bust kids, even though at the time this decision was made, the United States Congress had black-only schools in D.C., 
and all sorts of other stuff was going on. So it's very clear that the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education is completely wrong and just made the shit up. And there's no explanation for how they can reverse themselves. And it doesn't matter how much of a racist you think I am for saying that. Those are just the facts. I'm not in favor of racism. I'm telling you that the Constitution, the way it's written, does not in any way require that the races be jammed together and that any law that allows them to be separate or even mandates that they be separate is somehow unconstitutional. And that's what this case stands for. And the case, in fact, goes on and describes how these kinds of separations and stuff, they're societal. And the people themselves have to come together and decide they want to mix. That's all. You can't pass laws to do any of this. It won't work. Hi, it's Legal Man. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you appreciate the unique insight and information I provide, then go over to my Patreon account for The Quash and become a member. I have bonus shows and material, early access, and it's a good place to meet like-minded people. I have people ask me all the time, what can we do, legal man? (laughs) Well, start by voting with your pocketbook. It's the only vote that really counts. Support things that tell people the truth. Getting people to understand the truth is the only solution we have to this insanity. Look, I get it. There are a lot of people who can't afford to support my show with money. But there are a lot of people who can. And if you can and you like the show, you should support it. That's what free markets look like. The people running this scam, they have unlimited funding. I don't have support of that system. In fact, I get harassed because I tell people the truth that they don't want the people to know. So we have to stick together. So go sign up. Now let's get back to the show. These kinds of separations and stuff, they're societal. And the people themselves have to come together and decide they want to mix. That's all. You can't pass laws to do any of this. It won't work. So, here we go. This case turns upon the constitutionality of an act of the General Assembly of the state of Louisiana passed in 1890, providing for separate railway carriages for the white and colored races. The first section of the statute enacts that all railroad companies carrying passengers in their coaches in this state shall provide equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races by providing two or more passenger coaches for each passenger train or by dividing the passenger coaches by a partition so as to secure separate accommodations, provided that this section shall not be construed to apply to street railroads. No person or person shall be admitted to occupy seats and coaches other than the ones assigned to them on account of the race they belong to. That's the law. They cite it out there. You can see how direct and clear it is. This is definitely a separate but so-called equal situation. It doesn't make the blacks better or worse. It simply divides them. That's all it does. And that's a very important point. Because it doesn't actually put the black people in a worse position any more than it puts the white people in a worse position. The only reason that idea that it's a worse position is because somebody says it. But the accommodations themselves are equal. The fact that they don't allow them to mix. It wasn't like they don't allow the black people to come in the white cars. They don't allow white people to go sit back in the black cars. So it's completely race neutral As crazy as it sounds, it is a race-neutral way they wrote it. That's just the bottom line. So let's listen to this next one. By the second section, it was enacted that the officers of such passenger trains shall have power and are hereby required to assign each passenger to the coach or compartment used for the race to which such passenger belongs. 
Any passenger insisting on going into a coach or compartment to which by race he does not belong shall be liable to a fine of $25 or in lieu thereof to imprisonment for a period of not more than 20 days in the parish prison. And any officer of any railroad insisting on assigning a passenger to a coach or compartment other than the one set aside for the race to which said passenger belongs shall be liable to a fine of $25 or in lieu thereof to imprisonment for a period of not more than 20 days in the Paris prison. You see, it's completely race neutral. And the reality is they have the same fine for anybody who won't obey to go sit down as they do for anybody who, as a railroad officer, refuses to assign somebody to the seat. So they're covering themselves. See, this is well lawyered up, this law. As insane as the law is, it's well lawyered. This is my point, is that if you read the Constitution, the so-called Constitution laws and all this other crap, you can write up all sorts of shit that gets outcomes that nobody would expect or believe. But here we are. They fine you if uh, you refuse to go back and sit where you're supposed to. And they fine the guy if he refuses to make you go back and sit where you're supposed to. (laughs) All right, let's finish this up here. And should any passenger refuse to occupy the coach or compartment to which he or she is assigned by the officer, such railway, such officer shall have the power to refuse to carry such passenger on his train. And for such refusal, neither he nor the railroad company, which he represents, shall be liable for damages in any of the courts of the state. In other words, it's full immunity. Full immunity. Look, you have to separate them. If you don't separate them and somebody refuses to do anything, they don't like it, they want to cause a problem, you can't sue them for that. You can't sue them for that. The third section provides penalties for the refusal and neglect of the officers, directors, conductors, and employees of railroad companies to comply with the act, with a proviso that nothing in this act shall be construed as applying to nurses attending children of the other race. The fourth section is immaterial. So you can see they all the way up, directors, officers and directors are liable if they don't engage in this conduct, if they don't make sure that their employees are doing it. This is absolutely 100%. State-mandated separation of the races. Not an option, not separate but equal. You could do this. There's no wiggle room given here. You've got to sit in it, and you've got to make people sit in it. (laughs) This is how crazy it all is. And even under those facts, the court finds that there's no violation of the Constitution. There's no violation of the Constitution because this is not about state action with regards to something that is equal protection protected. That's it. And it's not a privilege and immunity of being a citizen and all this other stuff because you're allowed to ride on the train the same way that everybody else is. It's not about being black. It's not about being white. It's about the fact that if you are black or you are white, then you have to have these separate things. And so this is a great example of the way you can feringify the law to make it have an outcome that's like, well, that's... Why that doesn't make any sense? Well, of course it doesn't really make any sense. We all know what they're doing, and so does the Supreme Court. But they're doing what they're allowed to. And in light of the time, it's absolutely, completely acceptable. There's endless things going on exactly like this. Congress itself is doing them. And so the idea that the 14th Amendment did what we're told today is just not true. It's just not true. All right, let's do a little bit more here. The information filed in the criminal district court charged in substance that Plessy, being a passenger between two stations within the state of Louisiana, was assigned by officers of the company to the coach used for a race to which he belonged. But he insisted upon going into a coach used by the race to which he did not belong. 
neither in the information nor plea was his particular race or color averred. In other words, we don't know what color he was. It doesn't matter. He was assigned to sit in a certain car based upon this officer of the train, the conductor, saying you have to go sit in this car. Well, the law required that he had to make that decision. He made the decision. He's not liable for it. You had to live by it. That's it. It doesn't matter if you're a white person getting wrongly assigned or a black person getting wrongly assigned. It doesn't make any difference. See? The petition for the writ of prohibition of her, the petitioner was seven-eighths Caucasian, one-eighth African in blood. That the mixture of colored bloods was not discernible in him and that he was entitled to every right, privilege, and immunity secured to citizens of the United States of the white race. And that, upon such theory, he took possession of a vacant seat in a coach where passengers of the white race were accommodated and was ordered by the conductor to vacate said coach and take a seat in another assigned to persons of the colored race. And having refused to comply with such demand, he was forcibly ejected with the aid of a police officer and imprisoned in the parish jail to answer for charge of having violated the above act. The constitutionality of the act is attacked upon the ground that it conflicts with both the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, abolishing slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which prohibits certain restrictive legislation on the parts of the states. So this is clearly, we're talking dead down the center, no possible way to confuse this with anything else. All the issues are in front of the court. They're all in front of the court. Here's what the court says. Number one. That it does not conflict with the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime, is too clear for argument. The Supreme Court loves these. In this case, it's probably accurate. This is not slavery. Slavery implies involuntary servitude, a state of bondage, the ownership of mankind as a chattel, or at least a control of the labor and services of one man for the benefit of another, and the absence of a legal right to disposal of his own person, property, and services. This amendment was said in the slaughterhouse cases to have been intended primarily to abolish slavery as it had been previously known in this country, and that it equally forbade Mexican peonage or the Chinese coolie trade when they amounted to slavery or involuntary servitude, and that the use of the word servitude was intended to prohibit the use of all forms of involuntary slavery of whatever class or name. It was intimated, however, in that case meaning the slaughterhouse cases, that this amendment was regarded by the statesmen of the day as insufficient to protect colored race from certain laws which had been enacted in southern states, imposing upon the colored race onerous disabilities and burdens and curtailing their rights in their pursuit of life, liberty, or property to such an extent that their freedom was of little value, and the 14th Amendment was devised to meet this exigency. They say this, but they really came so close together. I don't know what it is. I've never looked into the thing. But we all know the way it's interpreted today, and this is how it's interpreted. Obviously, the 13th Amendment is crap. There's no way you can use it in this case. You're not being made a slave because you're being put into a different car because the whites are suffering the exact same thing. It's race neutral. It is race neutral. The whites are treated exactly the same as the blacks. Whites can only sit with whites. Blacks can only sit with blacks. The only reason there's anything there that people think that it's discriminatory is because blacks were slaves. Therefore, they were so-called looked down on. But there's nothing in the law that actually looks down on them. Yeah, that's a very, very important point. Very important. It's not a racist point. It's a factual point. All right, let's look at it. 
So too, in the civil rights cases, it was said that the act of a mere individual, the owner of an inn, public conveyance, or place of amusement, refusing accommodations to colored people, cannot be justly regarded as imposing any badge of slavery or servitude upon the applicant, but only as involving an ordinary civil injury properly cognizable by the laws of the state and presumably subject to redress by those laws until the contrary appears. It would be running the slavery argument into the ground, said Justice Bradley, to make it apply to every act of discrimination which a person may see fit to make as to the guests he will entertain, or as to the people he will take into his coach or cab or car or admit to his concert or theater or deal with other matters of intercourse of business. That's the way the Civil Rights Act was seen back there in 1883, that it's completely ridiculous. You can't claim the 13th Amendment, slavery, this and that, and we never hear the end of slavery now. Reparations are still going on and on about that now. But he says, look, you can't turn it into an act of slavery. It's ridiculous that the way you treat someone at a concert or something. That's not slavery, people. It's just not. Let's continue. A statute which implies merely a legal distinction between the white and colored races, a distinction which is founded in the color of the two races and which must always exist so long as white men are distinguished from the other race by color, has no tendency to destroy the legal equality of the two races or reestablish a state of involuntary servitude. Indeed, we do not understand that the 13th Amendment is strenuously relied upon by the plaintiff in error in this connection. In other words, that's all they're going to say about the 13th Amendment. Let's get serious, guys. This is not an issue of slavery, okay? No matter how much we hear about slavery and how many, everything's compared to slavery now, everyone acts like they're being kept as a slave. If you just do the slightest little thing, they bring up slavery now. This shit was put to rest 30 years after the Civil War. They were sick of hearing about it. Let's get serious. This is not slavery. Whether it's the 14th Amendment is another issue. Okay, I agree. But I've already given you endless examples here. And the court goes through even more of how this was just common. Okay, this was common. There is a distinction. There is a difference. And it doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional. What does the 14th Amendment really prevent? What does it really allow? And those are the issues, right? So we're going to get into with the 14th Amendment and its issues of the 14th Amendment in the next show. But I wanted to set the case up and show you the time frame it was happening, give you an idea of when the case came down, give you an idea of just how different this case is than what people might have imagined. And the court's opinion, though I don't think it's great, it's not wrong. And the dissent is weak at best. And it definitely is not about trying to stand up for black people by any stretch of the imagination. And so you can see that once you understand the way the structure works and the way these complicated kinds of procedural things come up and you're going to see the way they use the so-called standards and burdens, you can see how you can come up with all sorts of different conclusions. And that's what Brown v. Board shows, that the court can at any time just make shit up, say something different, reverse itself, come up with a different outcome with facts that are nowhere near as bad. There's no way you can have facts more insane and outrageous than this. And so if this was constitutional, to say that people have to be able to go to school together is nonsense. It's just complete nonsense, as far as constitutionally. If people want to go to school together, then they should be allowed to. There shouldn't be laws, I don't think, that would require that you not be able to. This Plessy case, I'm not in favor of Louisiana law that says that you must sit 
that you're not allowed to sit in these other places, that's criminal for you to move around. That's outrageous and insane to me because I'm not in favor of anything like that. That's insane state power. What I'm saying is that even such insane state power is found to be constitutional. So this is just how far off all of the scales can be jiggered around to render any kind of result you want, any kind of result you want. And this is the kind of thing that the public is not told the truth about. And this case is the kind of thing that is hidden from people. And even when you're in law school, you do not really understand any of the details of this case. You just don't. It's just all covered up. So... That's all I want to say about it for today. And there's so much more to get into in the case. Very, very interesting. I think it's, like I said, it's very Spooner-esque in that there's a lot to say about the case and a lot of the stuff that they bring up, even though most of the stuff they bring up is kind of weird and anachronistic, but it does set the flavor for how preposterous the interpretation is today and the absurdity of allowing some star chamber to simply make shit up just write stuff down that's not even agreed to, and then to bind everybody. It's got a lot of good lessons in there. I really think it does. So that's all I'm going to say about today. If you want to, you can follow me. I'm Legal Man at US Crime Review on Twitter. I want to thank people who are on Patreon. I really do. I appreciate you guys. I really do try to explain to people the fundamentals of the way the system works so that people can learn how to fish instead of just be given a fish and told an opinion from some so-called constitutional joker. I'm trying to show you the way these people create these fraudulent positions and confuse everybody so that you will be able to see it in real time whenever you run into it, and you'll know the scam that is constitutional interpretation. And so I appreciate the people who understand the value of what I've brought to them and that they support my show. I really do appreciate you guys. As to the movie, Andrew says he's having a really difficult time finding a place in Dallas to show Jones Plantation. I don't have an explanation for it outside. The people just aren't replying to him. The guy can't get him to respond. So I'm not sure there's going to be a screening in Dallas. But we are going to show it on the 21st, which will have already passed by the time this plays. And hopefully people enjoyed it. They really liked it in Phoenix when we played it. And there's going to be other screenings. We have to make other screenings. And it will be digitally released here relatively soon, I suspect, uh, over the next month or so. It'll be available to purchase. And I hope people support the movie. I know that I saw it. I really enjoyed it. There's got a lot of great memes and gifs in there. It really explodes all the official narratives. And it's entertaining. So I hope people watch it and enjoy it. Maybe they get something out of it. Movies are a great way to subtly sort of infuse information into people. Most people won't listen to a podcast or read anything and their minds are closed. But hopefully we can make some progress with movie. So thank you to anybody who supports that project. And beyond that, I don't think there's anything else to say. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. You guys have been a great audience as usual. Everybody have a nice night or day wherever you are. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Let's put your hands together one more time for Legal Man. Thanks so much. I get to take your service on the way out. More, more, more.